Blog Talk Radio. Pride, you lose your pride, 
Come on, man. What do you got left? You got to have some pride in your heritage. Get back what? down there. Well, get you that know. spotlight <laughs> and put that flag up. You know what? I think it represents the mood that a lot of people are feeling. Maybe. And listen, I saw saw a group, I think we mentioned last week this uh, statue of the Jesuit priest is being taken down in St. Louis, and they said that this Jesuit priest and the Christian cross represent Christian colonialism and American expansionism and all this other stuff. Well, listen, they want the American flag taken down, so well, I don't really want to uh, play into their hands. seems like we need to find, maybe if you don't like the American flag, you need to find a new flag to fly. Maybe it's a Confederate flag. Maybe it's that snake flag. Was it don't tread on me? That's a great one. It's still legal. I don't know whether or not they're going to uh, stop flying that flag because too many people are scared of snakes or whatever. It might be the snake bite society. But so we're, we're on a different page here. I felt depressed from seeing these emails that were coming in. I felt like too many people were just giving up. Look, there are still people in the, in the, in the U.S. government who are worried about uh, the same policy. There's still people... Uh, even in the Bilderberg group, even in these societies and these rich people, there's still a few of them left in the middle there. They may have to hide what they truly believe. You know, the Zionists haven't taken over this world completely yet. There are people fighting back, and as long as there's people fighting back, there's hope. So, I don't know. You you fly your Florida flag, buddy. That's got uh, that's got some proud history, I guess. Although you might be losing that too. I'm not sure that has that Confederate text in there. Well, he well Bush took it down 14 years ago. This Jeff Bush, when he was governor, he took it down from the state house 14 years ago. Oh, uh, the, the battle flag. Yeah, I'm talking about your your Florida flag is a crosses a red cross of St. Andrews, right on a white field. Right. With uh, what the state seal on top of it. What was the? Do you know what the? Has that been the Florida flag since the end of the Civil War? Or they had a few. They probably had a few incarnations on that too. I know Georgia's changed their flag like at least six times since the end of the Civil War. Let's look, check it out, my friend. Very good. There it is. And that is the great seal of the state of Florida and God we trust. Uh oh. <laughs> Gotta get rid of that. Right. Yeah. And uh oh, you take and, you take a, pr- a proud look at the uh oh, there might be some new old order uh, imagery in there, but you take a look at the flag of Virginia, and you tell me what that logo says. I will. Okay. By the way, this Florida flag was approved by popular referendum on November 6, 1900. The flag's current design has been in use since May 21, 1985, after the state seal was graphically altered and officially sanctioned for use by state officials. So there you uh, go. If I'm not wrong. If you yeah. take a look at the Virginia flag. Yes. And it's a blue field circle with a looks like a Roman gal. By the way, she has a breast exposed here. I can't imagine that's going to have to be. Now, actually, she'd probably go double uh, completely topless in the future of the of the political uh, political order the way it is now. Yes, but she has a breast exposed. Six right. for Tyrannus. Death to tyrants. Right. Yes. Right. Right. There's a tyrant down there dead with a crown. So if you're proud of your state flag, fly your state flag. Maryland is where I came from, and they have a unique flag, which is a tie directly back to the uh, old founders of that state. At any rate, we're getting off the track here. Today we're talking about the idea that possibly North American Indian, any of the tribes in the Northeast are descendants, possibly, 
carries still carries some genes of, um, of ancient travelers from Europe. Of course, the theory kind of goes. I'll give you the mainstream theory first. I'm sure you're aware of it. I think sometime after the glaciers began to recede, about 13,000 years ago, maybe 13,000 BC. That's about 13,000 to 11,000 BC. These uh, glaciers began to recede back up into northern Canada, and this opened up a big pathway for the Mongols to come across, uh, and they then uh, quickly spread across the country, tamed this continent for themselves, and were responsible for building everything that you had seen from North, Central, and South America. By the way, in Central and South America, as I'm also sure you are well aware, is some really amazing old cultural remains uh, in Central America, the pyramids of uh, the uh, Yucatan Peninsula, of course, and the Olmec heads, those huge uh, both spherical heads that look eerily like uh, uh, African, West Africans. And you have, of course, uh, uh, the, the, the remains of what the huge citadels that were uh, given credit to the uh, Incans, mostly uh, Puma Punku, and let's see, you had Tenochtitlan, I believe, that was uh, uh, the Menmashi Pichu later. Uh, these were cities or walls and structures that were aligned to the sun, that were defensive, that were made of absolutely massive, massive pieces of stone, thousands of tons, cut in polygonal shapes and fit together. So you couldn't even put like, a, even today, I don't think they could put a butter knife between them. And they were also like cutting them like that, I think this very, made them very much resistant to the earthquakes that you're going to find on the uh, west coast of South America. But we're talking more about what happened well before that. Um, and so the scientists have always said that, you know, you're not going to find too many skeletons here or remains here that would have been prior to this Mongol invasion from, from Russia to Alaska and down through. <clears throat> of course, the world has been rocked recently, maybe in the past 15 to 20 years and, and, and happening more every day that you're finding things on the East Coast of America that are significantly older than you're finding in the what we'll call the Bering Land Bridge Corridor. And a lot of these things are happening right here in, in the Chesapeake Bay area. As a matter of fact, one of the more astonishing finds um, that was reported, and these are being reported, and they're not hiding that. They are kind of uh, not really promoting the possibility that these are European artifacts. But anyway, they found this a mammoth skull in Chesapeake Bay. An old oyster dredger was out there taking his oyster rake and dragging it through the deep mud of the parts of the Chesapeake or off the coast there, of the east coast of Maryland, Delmarva Peninsula, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia. And he pulled up this odd find and he gave it to a scientist because they saw a little rock sticking out of what looked like some bone. I think it turned out to be a portion of a mammoth skull or a mammoth jawbone. And in it was a projectile point and the head of an arrow or a spear. And uh, I don't think it's a mammoth or a mastodon. There is a great difference between the two of them, although they're both animals you don't really want to tackle with. But anyway, uh, right upon examination, they found that this uh, the artifact was of great antiquity. 
possibly 22,000 years old. I think it was to be about 20,000 BC. And uh, this projectile point, according to one man I did get the chance to speak to who has a degree in anthropology and archaeology and lives in South Carolina. He's a Barnes Review American Free Press subscriber. A petrographer found that the stone, the signature of the stone, shall we say, because these guys today can examine these things with a microscope and find out exactly where the rock came from. Amazing stuff. Says that it was from the uh, France, which is today France, region of Europe, which is absolutely incredible because this would have uh, added credence to those who are claiming that the Clovis culture here in ancient America, which were the makers of those gorgeous points that you see, uh, uh, I'll explain that in a minute, and the, the great mastodon hunters of uh, North America, the ones that uh, hunted these giant sloth and saber-toothed cats, they didn't hunt them. I imagine they just protected themselves from the um, you wouldn't go after a saber-toothed cat. But all these other massive Ice Age animals, uh, the, the uh, beautiful points there, were made by the Clovis people. They call them the Clovis people. Uh, because they found the first, the first spine was enclosed in New Mexico. But anyway, I digress. That the only antecedent to this particular projectile point form is found in, I think it was southwest France, and maybe a portion of what's now Spain, uh, about from a culture, <coughs> excuse me, called the Salutrians. And the Salutrians were living about 20,000 to 22,000 years ago. You have to double-check on this up, and if anybody's listening, they can always send us an email or a call, right? Can you give out that call number? Yeah, sure. That's Hold uh, one second. Let me say, yeah. we're going to wait about an hour. We'll take calls at 11 o'clock. Or when I when I invite you to call in, just so I can finish my dissertation here, uh, go ahead and give out that number, would you, Dave? Yeah, that's 347-215-7292, 347-215-7292. Of course, if you're listening through Block Talk Radio, which you probably are, you'll see the number right there as well. Is there a way for people to make comments directly into Block Talk and for you to see what they're typing in? Yeah, there are. There's there's a chat window, so they could type something in there. They could curse us out and, you know, do whatever you want. Very good. So, yeah. And you'll monitor, monitor that. Oh, yeah. I'm, uh, so anyway, this theory makes no sense to a lot of mainstream historians. How in the world could Europeans have gotten over here ancient, uh, unsophisticated barbarians, you know, cavemen gotten over here uh, but way back then? Well, it just so happens they weren't barbarians. They really weren't unsophisticated. They were quite possibly the most sophisticated humans living on the planet for quite some time. And also, the, uh, just so you know where those glaciers were, those glaciers had moved down across the uh, North Atlantic, across most of Europe, or half of Europe, probably to the Mediterranean, right? And the climate could change there. And it came down in North America almost to the Chesapeake Bay. So if you follow the edge of that glacier, you would take you from Europe right to about the Chesapeake Bay where they're finding these really old uh, projectile points. So, okay, fine. I'll go into that in more detail later about what a closed point is, but not. But I, it is it is kind of technical. So, 
if we don't have to, we will, because people can look it up and kind of get an idea. But let's just say this. Whoever made those points in Solutria, and they are, but people look it up, Solutrian points, they were these massive, much bigger than Clovis point, massive, like, spear point that was so beautifully shaped. It was a, a, a lanceolate, which would be kind of like a, a teardrop, I'll say. It's not exactly right, but, and they were so smoothly worked into, like, chert and chalcedony and flint, um, and, and so carefully done that, like, one mistake, you know, you would have, would have broken it in half, practically. They were very thin, very sharp, and they had a way of working on both sides, which was called bifacial uh, flint napping. And they would remove the, uh, the, the one chip at a time, and then they would put this beautiful, I don't know about the solutions, the clothes later again, the solution points are gorgeous just like this, but they would put what they call the flute right place where it sticks into the spear shaft, and that's a unique feature of a Clovis point. So the scientists were looking around, where are we going to find this? Where where, where, where where did this come from? Oh, the American Union invented the Clovis point in North America after he came across the Bering Strait baloney, because here is this perfect antecedent of it. They haven't found a lot of uh, transitional forms between the Salutrian and the Clovis points here in America. But they have found some that are kind of uh, suspicious or certainly could possibly be this kind of uh, uh, intermediate form between the Solutrean point and the Clovis point here, right here in Virginia, at this place called Cactus Hill. I mentioned that in a previous show. You ought to check that out. It's amazing. So anyway, okay, fine. We have a little bit of evidence that possibly these Europeans made it over here. Um, coincidentally, uh, the, the oldest Clovis sites in America are not in New Mexico, which they're named after Clovis, but right here on the east coast of, of North America. Now, great, we got we got some what looks like some pretty firm evidence. We have a little DNA evidence as well, and that's this X haplogroup. I am no expert in DNA day, I will tell you, but this is a weird thing. Uh, the North American Indians share in common, uh, I guess it's a gene, shall we say, or DNA, uh, carried through the mother, which I believe is mtDNA. I'd love if someone could call up and tell us a little more about this, because I am no expert on that. But they share in common with only Europeans and people in the Mideast. There, and there's one small pocket in the, where the Takarians would have been in China, a uh, very small pocket of whites who live there on the trade ground. But, but mostly it almost just screams out to us that the American Indian has some relationship to the Europeans, to ancient Europeans. This is not necessarily a modern thing, um, people, because this is, a, this is an ancient uh, DNA carried through the mother, I guess. But at any rate, so here's another thing. We have these Spear points that relate to Europe. We have DNA that we think relates to Europe and the Mideast. Okay, fantastic. So 20,000 years ago, or 22,000 years ago, Europeans came over here, blah, blah, blah. So some scientists who are archaeologists who'd be digging would say, well, you ain't going to find anything under those levels. And so people would keep, uh, one guy in Pennsylvania, I'm sorry, for instance, a place called Metacroft, Rock shelter, I believe it is, uh, decided he would 
keep on digging, and he found stuff at like 25,000 years old, 30,000 years old, 35,000 years old. And he said he stopped digging because he was digging further. They would accuse him of um, planning this stuff, or uh, they would ridicule the guy because it simply isn't possible that there are artifacts in America prior to the opening of this uh, Bering Strait land bridge. So it's pretty obvious that you know, maybe even before these Salutrians, who were, uh, some people are imagining they were responsible for one of the occupational phases of the Lascaux Caves, those beautiful cave paintings that we've all become so familiar with in France. And uh, just amazing stuff. I mean, they artistic technique that wasn't used again for thousands of years of putting paint in a, a tube, a bone tube, and blowing it on almost like an airbrush and, and, and shading, you know, just beautiful stuff. They knew their animals, that's for sure. It was a religious site for them. But um, at any rate, that that, the, that that there was people coming here before even them. How did they get here? Uh, when did they get here? We don't know. At least I don't know. I mean, I can't figure out how they were getting here from that much further back. Uh, and, of course, everybody knows the continents were connected at one time. But that was millions and millions of years before we're talking about. So that doesn't explain it. These people had to have come across great distances, probably in some type of a high boat, hugging the edge of a glacier or something, maybe hunting some seal. By the way... I just want to to interrupt. And remember what you were going to say, all right? Because, by the way, did you? Don't forget, all right? Yes. There are a lot of people out there who believe that the Earth is only about 4,000 years old. Yes, absolutely, four, five, six. As a matter of fact, I had a guy cancel. Well, listen, I I don't believe that myself. Uh, I'm no expert again. I say that about just about everything because a guy can't know everything, and, and me, I'm just a... Uh, a graphic designer and a marketing person by trade, but also a writer and an amateur historian. But uh, according to uh, the guy I talked to, you you may not be, evolution is the problem. You may not be able to find a straight evolutional trail for human beings that can prove the age of this earth. Uh, Because, by the way, the number of ancient human bones we've found with all these great finds, and I'm talking about really ancient bones. I'm not talking about Kennewick Man, which, which we could talk about for hours, or um, uh, a couple of these other ones. Uh, I can't remember the name. Common Pinion Man and others are down in America. But you're talking, uh, even those ones that they call like Lucy, right? All the ancient fossils of man we have that are supposed to be in that little chart that they show you where we start from a monkey and move up. All that, those, those fossils of man would only fill up something about the size of a coffin. So the proof for the evolution of humans from ape to our present um, form, there's a lot of missing holes there. And I don't think that they love to present that as a little straight timeline that they've proven, uh, but it's not. They don't really know. But what we do have, a great number of fossils that can really prove evolution at least through older creatures, specifically in this case the mosasaur, that, that humongous uh, predator of like 
dinosaur times, right? As a matter of fact, he, he pops up if you've seen it in this new Jurassic Park movie. No, I haven't seen it. I'd like to see it, though. And somebody out there has seen it, and you'll see that Mosasaur. Well, those Mosasaurs would die and would go to the bottom of the ocean. And the bottom of the ocean places, you just have layer after layer after layer after layer after layer, which was literally, according to John Tiffany, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years of, of uh, the evolution of this particular animal. Uh, you know, listen, I don't get it. If, if God created the earth millions of years ago, uh, did, does he come back and tinker all the time, or did he just kind of let things go for a while, then pop back on and put man here? I don't know. I'm only saying that things, that, to me, evolution kind of goes hand in hand with divine creation, right? Intelligent design. Because if you're going to create something, why couldn't you create it a million years ago? I mean, just things kind of move along very slowly and, and things change. I, I really don't know the design of, of our creator, but it certainly seems that they go hand in hand. If there, However, was, a, if there was a creator. True. Well, it's an awfully hard subject to figure out because I always say, well, once there was nothing, then there was something. Oh, no, there was something. There was the oxygen molecule or the helium molecule, I guess it is. I'm like, well, who made the helium molecule? So it's an, even for even for the most intelligent and sophisticated human being, explaining the creation of the universe in any other fashion is, um, is, is difficult without divine intervention, in my opinion. But at any rate, let's not go there right now. I will only say that, that so those people who would insist that the Earth is only four or 5,000, I'd say, could you please just push it back to say 20,000 or 50,000 because there's so much out there that would have had to happen so fast that we would have been recording this stuff on papyrus or whatever would have happened. I mean, here the Egyptians began what recording things in 3000 BC in stone, 3500 BC in stone. We have pictographs of, uh, of well, I guess that would fit in with their timeline, but even so, there's there's a history that goes back much further. The Egyptians just didn't change overnight. Uh, they they had to develop writing. They didn't develop it overnight, and they know that there was people before them because there's layers of. of well, these aren't super ancient human beings. Over the way, the ones I'm talking about, that the bones of Bill Coffin are millions of years old, possibly. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, Dave, I digress. And you put me, and you think I don't know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about uh, mtDNA and exaplogroups. Well, I certainly don't know how the Earth is created or how old it is. So believe what you want, and if you want me to stop quoting dates, I will. But at any rate, no, well, no, 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 not at all. Uh, but but I, there are some. This is the beautiful thing about history: is there's so many things you don't know. And the further back you go, the more you don't know. And then all of a sudden, you find a place like uh, Gobekli Tepe which we talked about in Anatolia in one of the early shows. And you look at that site, and it kind of fits in with our um, timeline. We think we know what we're talking about when we say a place like Catalvayuk, how you pronounce that, in the uh, Fertile Crescent, shall we say. I think it's in uh, Turkey, northern Syria, probably Turkey, um, all contained in Turkey. It's five or six thousand years old, and then all of a sudden you look a little further and you figure the things kind of relate. You're about seven thousand years old, and then you go to the back of the and it's nine, ten thousand years old. But your point is well taken because 
I think I can find it. I, I would like to. I probably can't dig it up. But it was a cancellation letter I did get from the Barnes Review. And it said, Dear Sir, I've been a subscriber for many years, but your writers throw around these uh, carbon dates so freely, I don't think that they know what they're talking about. And I think the guy believes that the Earth is only 5,000 years old. Um, and uh, so there are a great number of people who do adhere to that. I, right, I, and, and yeah. when we don't know anything, you know, you and I, I mean, we could we could have our own opinion, we could speculate, but you well, certainly can't speak with any authority. I mean, there are holes in the carbon dating process, so. Absolutely. There's more than carbon dating, too. It's got radioisotope dating and everything else, but I really don't care what happened prior to about 50,000 B.C. If everybody could just agree they were 50,000 years old, I'd be happy enough. Of course, that those daggone dinosaurs were either running around with us or they weren't. And we'd kind of be running around with us nice and then besides a few oddball finds, which a uh, few people are, are, are holding on to pretty tightly, like uh, human footprints next to a dinosaur footprint um, uh, and stone, one oddball thing, or the Ica stones, which were stones depicting dinosaurs with humans that they, I think they now believe are a fraud. Uh, I mean, it's just such a huge number of things for us to explain. At any rate, again, we're off the track a little bit here. Uh, basically, what I'm saying is forget the dates. All we know is we don't know nothing. And that means that you're digging down layer after layer after layer, and one layer's got a piece of iron, and 50 layers under that's got some bronze, and 50 more layers under that's got some copper, and then 50,000 more years uh, under that has got stone, and you can pretty much say that the human beings associated with those particular layers um, are uh, coming after each other. They've gone through using stone tools. Maybe you've got 100 layers of stone, for gosh sakes. But anyway, listen, I don't want to get too much more time on that, Dave. Um, uh, we're, we're going to talk about something else here for a second. And that is, not only do we think that people may have been here uh, 38,000, 48,000, 50,000 years ago, they probably came from Polynesia. They probably came uh, while there were, excuse me, well before the Mongols. And they probably came from Europe, too. Man is a very clever fellow, and he is a great problem solver. By the way, we mentioned the Kennewick man earlier. He is allegedly about, I should say allegedly, that might cover him. He's allegedly about 9,000 years old. I think that would make him around 7,000 BC. This is a very interesting skeleton, the oldest complete skeleton I believe they found in the United States. They have found one Clovis era fellow up in a child's burial in Montana, I think it was. And he too had this ancient white Siberian Russian, we'll say. DNA in him, and uh, leading more people to believe that this X haplogroup, this X DNA, might have come from west to east instead of east to west. But looking at where it's located now in the populations in the north uh, northeast of, of North America, 
think about it, we seem to lead one to believe that the ex-Catholic group came from Europe. By the way, look at the American Indian. He's just a different, different fellow. He's got no facial hair, right, which would have been early ones anyway. Kind of like the, like they're related to nobody. He's reddish skin. He's tall. He's got high cheekbones. And he, he, he kind of looks like he had a big nose. I am almost like a Semite. And uh, so this, this connection with the ex-Hathor group to the, the populations in the Middle East and specifically the Druze, they're at 27% X in this Druze group, because it's further kind of just lead one to believe that uh, the North American Indian in the upper northeast, the Woodland Indian, the East Coast Indians are related to a European stock. Well, you look at the Navajo, look at the Nespiers, look at some of the other, the Apache. Well, they certainly look like the Mongoli type, and there's no doubt we're not denying that huge waves of Mongols came from across the Bering land bridge or even along the coast, possibly, because they could have done it too, I think. Uh, although they did not leave uh, it's pretty obvious they didn't invent this Clovis projectile point technology because the ones coming from the Asians, Mongols coming from Russia had a, a completely different type of a toolkit. They were a microblade users, which is this bone where you insert multiple small, sharp pieces of stone, almost like a tooth, so you have a jaw you were cutting with, you know, and that is far different from the Clovis technology. But anyway, I was mentioning Kennewick Man. And so this Kennewick Man, at first they thought, maybe let's say he's a European. I'm not sure they're right. And again, I'm no expert, but people always say, this proves the white man got here first and he came from Europe. Well, no, it just proves that a lot of people were here very much long ago in 7,000 BC. doesn't really make you that old of a, of a visitor here. Not when you're comparing some of these sites on the east coast of America. But anyway, the point was that he was a very interesting skeleton. He was about five foot six, five foot seven maybe. At recreations, they say he looked like Jean-Luc Picard from Star Trek The Next Generation. I've seen other ones that depict him with a heavy beard. He's almost never depicted with Mongolian eyes or the epicanthic, let's say they, they lack the epicanthic fold. I forget which it is, but the epicanthic fold is the dead giveaway between a Caucasian and a Mongol. Uh, but it, embedded in his hip was a cascade point. And the cascade point was a bifacial point of stone work on both sides, which was associated with cascade culture, which would have been just about 9,000 to 12,000, right around when this guy was here, Kennewick Man. He had other injuries that he had survived. I think it was him. He had like something that fallen on his chest and kind of crushed a portion of his chest, but he survived. And he'd been shot in the, in the, in the iliac, crashed your hip bone. He was, this uh, this projectile point was sticking out of his hip bone. <laughs> that is, the bone had, had, had healed around this. So this led a lot of people to say that the uh, Mongols genocided the whites who were in this country uh, from Europe. And that this was the first genocide and Anybody who denies this genocide is a Holocaust denier in their own way. I'm not sure that it actually proves this, because as I mentioned in another show, uh, there's evidence that a comet hit 
and dumped a ton of ash and stuff and really wrecked, wreaked havoc in North America just about the time Clovis culture on the East Coast begins to wane and the Mongolians pick up this cult, this, this extremely sophisticated bifacial projectile point technology, and they do use it to um, either wipe us out or just continue with the conquest of that continent. could also mean that they interbred with us, et cetera, et cetera. But if you look at what happened, Clovis culture was thriving in North America at the time, and suddenly you see this pretty thick ash layer in the sedimentation and the uh, strata around the Chesapeake Bay region, leading many scientists to believe that it was a cometary cataclysm, and that it was what wiped out the climate change, the ensuing climate change is what wiped out the megafauna of North America, not overhunting, okay, by, by these evil white men, Clovis hunters. <laughs> you know, there's great, great uh, uh, conclusions to be made on both sides. One of the ones is that the American Indian has always been living at one with the land. And he is uh, so much more sophisticated in understanding the land than the white man. And the white Europeans came and slaughtered the buffalo and you know, created the Dust Bowl. And this is true. But if you look back in the archaeological record, um, they were killing, killing, and by the way, man is not responsible in North America for killing all these megaphones. So if you go to some of these sites, you'll find that they were, they would use fire, the Indian, to uh, make a, you know, say, say a pathway, a white pathway for the buffalo to run through, perhaps some ancient bison, and run them off a cliff. And you would find in there, and they can still tell so much from skeletons, that the Indians might kill, say, a thousand buffalo. And this was well more than what they needed. They couldn't control the stampede. They were just as bad as anybody else. Later on, shooting the buffalo, we just did it with guns. They did it a little differently. But you can see that they would cut out the tongue of the buffalo. That must have been very tender. And I've never eaten it. I've always seen this package as a a beef tongue in the store <laughs> kind of looks yucky to me, but it must have been like the prized part of it. Possibly the brains were as well. It was tender. But anyway, poor Canada man, he just keeps waiting. When are you saying, when are you going to talk about me? At any rate, from what I understand about Canada man, he was an Australoid, and he may have, uh, and, and there was a recent find of DNA, excuse me, there was a recent test on him. I think they may have gotten a tiny little piece of bone stolen from him before the Indians insisted he'd even buried. But they said that it was East Asian. Now, the East Asians also had, these are not the Mongols, the East Asians are a little different. These are the Southern, Southeastern Asians. And they also mixed with ancient whites that were coming through this region to get to the, to the new continent. In fact, the Siberian Land region at the time may have been the great I 95 of the entire area. Uh, thousands of people slowly but surely may have been making their way across there, multiple races, and interbreeding along the way and uh, staying pure along the way, whatever. But the, the thing about the Canada man is, is how, how, how hard people try to hide the truth because I'm sure many people know this, but story of the Canada man that's most interesting is how he's told us about the people of America. 
with how hard scientists and archaeologists whose careers are dependent upon hiding the truth or at least making history turn out the way they've written about it for 20 years, but when they'll go to make sure that other people can't prove them wrong. In the end, the Kenwood man skeleton was found in Washington State by two amateurs. They were, I think they were going to a, a, a kayaking festival, just two young guys, and they're going along the beach, and they see a skull sticking out, and they run against the authorities. And the authorities initially thought that this skeleton was murderable, possibly from the 1800s. They thought, wow, this is really looking old. And then they run it through the, uh, through the they, they take up the bones as many as they can find, hundreds of bones, and uh, they take it to scientists, and scientists begin to analyze it, and they find that this is just a massive antiquity, and just as they're getting ready to sink their teeth into the bones, so to speak, of cops, the American Indians. I know the scientists who help them, they didn't know anybody you know, it's the first American Paul, there's uh, something going on outside your window? Yeah, there is. There's okay. Thing I can, do about that. <laughs> can you shut the window or it's already shut? The window is shut and wow. they are they are out here. I'll turn around and come up there. I'm putting my Oh, there are weed lock in here. Right. You got a big uh, gun? Well, see, now, see, there's, you know what? That's pretty Native American. At any rate, um, again, uh, even we'll, with you, I think they're going to stop it uh, momentarily. They'll get even closer in a moment. I'll get my wife to run out there with the dog. They'll run like crazy. That right. dog's not like anybody messing with that shot. But anyway, uh, they looked at it and they, the skeleton, once they determined it was of ancient origin and that it might have been white, they, um, they quickly, uh, American Indian activists quickly said that is our skeleton found in our property and um, they ran to get that thing buried. Well, a Smithsonian, Doug Owsley, a guy actually um, fought them as best as he could. Hey, it is, it, I gotta tell you, if it ain't the dog, it's the dog upstairs, right. or it's my kids, or it's the telephone, or it's a cell phone, it's a conspiracy. It's hacker. I mean, it's a conspiracy. Destroy my program. Yeah, <laughs> it's working. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I go, and, and then there's us. I mean, we're doing our part. <laughs> but anyway, um, then they found out yeah, where Doug Housley was fought and the Smithsonian fought to. And you know, study the thing. Come on. If the Indians want those things buried so fast, they do not want this native, you know, native American Indian. Uh, hey, by the way, Sweet Candy just sent me a, a, a Skype contact. <laughs> do you ever get those? Yeah, I do. And I write, do I know you? And then they say what they say, and then I say... Goodbye, and I block. I block and and um, report. Uh, I can't violation or something. Well, I really want to block sweet candy. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Yeah, especially my favorite is sweet slices. It's a god. Uh, um, <laughs> a big fat one from Eastern Europe, right? Um, but anyway, uh, the Smithsonian fought and fought. I'm not sure how it all ended up. All I know is the time was the time of Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton gave that skeleton back to the Indians, and they dumped literally tons of gravel and rock all over top of this thing so that it could never be studied again. Now, I think that uh, the Smithsonian got some samples, and by the way, you can't trust the Smithsonian either because they got, they have so many exhibits in their basement where they, they don't even know what they have anymore. 
And they've got some amazing stuff that they reported they used to have that you can't find anymore that also throws the archaeological and historical type of timetable of things on its head. But anyways, obviously American Indians didn't really want anybody to study that thing. And so uh, that was that. I mean, there was no way that this whole fable of the people in the Americas was going to be uh, overturned. Uh, and so, um, but you can't, you know, so, so in other words, I think that, what is it called, the Indian, the Indian like, the Repatriation or Reclamation Act or something, basically says that no matter what race that skeleton is, if it's found on Indian reservation property, then it belongs to the Indians, and they want to reinsure that usually, they're going to claim that they're doing it because uh, it needs a proper uh, burial, a religious ceremony or something, and of course, our version is they just don't really want anybody to know. I mean, so even Indians are scientifically interested, although the American, North American Indian culture has stagnated, one might say. Others would say that perhaps we would be better off if our culture, quote-unquote, stagnated. We didn't have cars and cell phones and iPads and the Internet and everything else. That so many people say these great advancements when, in fact, they really have kind of enslaved us but you know what? I find myself to be happy with being able to go onto the internet and see any of the things we've talked about in pictures of, excuse me, Clovis points and Cascade points and Kennewick man's bones. I happen to think that that particular part of our uh, cultural advancement, the access to information, has been a great advancement. For those who want to use it properly, you can't believe everything you see on the Internet, as we've said a million times. Well, we brought ourselves up to about the time of Kenneth Man. And I believe he's about 9,000 years old, we'll say, uh, allegedly 9,000 years old, possibly uh, 7,000 BC. And so there it ends. There's nothing else, right? Well, no, because I gave you a book that we had put together uh, from a, I put together four American Free Press. It was actually writings from the Barnes Review. Barnes Review is www.barnesreview.com, B-A-R-N-E-S-R-E-V-I-E-W, barnesreview.com. Four American Free Press newspaper as a premium to give away. That's AmericanFreePress.net called Ancient Visitors to America, the Evidence. So, you know, it really never stopped. Uh, people that have been coming to this continent, in my opinion, allegedly, since allegedly, 50, 60, 70,000 BC, maybe older, uh, I'm sure they're all older, fine, all the way through up to the modern era. There was never really a stoppage of this time, uh, of this, of this migrate, of these migrations. It's just that some cultures really didn't have the capacity to get here. The Africans, for instance, hadn't really developed a seafaring culture, uh, the Phoenicians had, and the Egyptians had, if you want to call them Africans, that's fine, I should say sub-Saharan Africans, and of course the Phoenicians had outposts in North Africa as well, and so Dave, there's evidence that the Phoenicians were here, the Egyptians might have been here, the Minoans were here, if you don't know who they are, they're that great seafaring culture that lived on the island of Crete, and were the basis for the legends of King Minos. There were uh, Conosos and other uh, cities, I mean, citadels with 
a unique uh, artistic style and the frescoes with the bull jumpers there. They were here. Uh, there's Minoan script on tablets in this country. There's Egyptian script. Uh, the Celts were probably here. People don't think of the Celts to be great seafarers, but if you look at the uh, books of Julius Caesar, who was quite an historian in his own right, uh, when he fought the Celts, they used almost Viking-style ships, low-draft ships with leather sails, and they were able, once they got the Roman boats in the shallow water, they'd make units meet out of them. But there's evidence of Celtic old on script. There's evidence that Picts were here, possibly. There's evidence that the Iberians were here, this, uh, especially the Tartesians, who a group who lived in western Spain, I think it was. After that, of course, the Vikings were here probably well before 4,000 B.C., and probably in greater numbers than anyone could possibly have imagined. Recent finds in the high Arctic have led scientists to believe that the Vikings were colonizing or at least taking advantage of the natural resources in some of these massive northern Canadian islands that people don't even know exist. Uh, because they just see a big white mass up there when they live in the map, but you've got some of the biggest islands in the world up there, Ellesmere Island and some of the other ones. And they were probably all the way as far as Minnesota, possibly as far as the west coast of um, America. You had this mysterious copper mining culture up in the uh, northern part of Michigan. And <laughs> amazingly, they're not exactly sure who they were. Um, what they do know is really like hundreds of thousands of tons of copper has been removed from North America and taken somewhere. Uh, you know, when modern mining companies would go to northern Michigan, they wouldn't really have to look too hard to find good copper mines. By the way, northern Michigan was, was one of the world's richest places for a little float of copper, which is copper just laying on the surface, but also just copper in general. And we had copper here galore. They had copper in Europe in a few places, I think, maybe Cyprus, maybe uh, Cornwall, and then and, and small quantities. But it never explained the amount of copper that they used in the Bronze Age. And of course, what are the kind of bronze is copper and tin, right? And that you mix together. And, um, they could never explain where all this copper came from. Well, they now believe that the copper that fueled the Bronze Age came, and the Copper Age, let's face it, came from North America. And how do we know how much they used? Well, even the Egyptians would, even Egypt, the Egyptians would write down that uh, their neighbors, whom they had trade relations with, had requested X number of talents, I think it was with their weight at the time of copper, and then you do the calculation, you figure that their neighbor, this neighbor wanted half a ton, and this neighbor wanted a ton, and this neighbor wanted gold, and this neighbor wanted diamonds, or whatever. But the one that was always intriguing to historians and archaeologists was the amount of copper that the ancient cultures of the Bronze Age used and where the heck they got it from. And I remember a story I read in the Barnes Review, which explained that when one of these modern mining companies went to uh, Michigan, they found in one place like these stone tools, which is kind of weird, but stone tools, and I think they call them 
the hand axe, their hand axes. So they also found spalls, I believe that is. I don't know if that's a tool or if it's what's going up over. I can't remember what the name of that one. But they found, because I don't write all this, where the place where all the stuff was coming from mostly. But they found literally junk truck. Junk trucks full work. They scoop it up, put it in the dump truck, and carry it away because it was getting in the way. And they were all like hand, hand stone breaking tools and hand axes, I'm going to call them. They really weren't work that finely. And so it was proof positive that the ancient cultures were here mining this copper in massive quantities. We brought it back. Well, a couple guys think it was the Minoans. They must assuredly had the ability to do it. And the theory, according to one, this one subscriber I was talking to, I believe it's this area, they were, the, the, the ancients would take it down the Mississippi, and they would take it to what we thought was now, now known as Owl Royale. Obviously, not Owl Royale, not Poverty Point, not Royale, where it started. And then ship it back through the Gulf of Mexico, around Florida, and back up to Europe. Uh, it was the easiest way to transport would have been uh, water. But anyway, yeah, you find the known script on two places that's pretty well documented. I know some of the forgeries, but you've got to take a guy who's a real expert to to, to, to do cuneiform and that type of stuff. And I don't know if I ever told you that today, but in Chief Joseph, Chief Joseph, the old Indian chief, in his medicine bag, after the battle of the wounded knee, I think it was, which was just about the end of his tribe at the time, um, they found in his medicine bag a small square uh, piece of clay, I think it was, or stone in which there was a cuneiform tablet. And most of these cuneiform tablets that they find are usually uh, trade records. Uh, I don't think this one says, Peter Chief Joseph, um, uh, how's everything going? They probably had some, some, um, something to do with trade well, well, well before his time. My Chief Justice said, we'll say he's 1880s, right? In the 1890s. This was like his ancient, ancient ancestors had given this to them, his tribe, and they had passed this down through generation after generation. And so they knew that somebody here was here. Of course, the Indians have another, that's a little besides the DNA and the stone points and the archaeological record. There's this thread running through American Indian culture of white. Culture bringers who bring them writing, who bring them the ability to, uh, I don't know, they the ability to fire uh, clay or not just clay, but uh, pottery making is pretty old, but to work metals perhaps, or to figure out how to fish in a better way, or make a fish hook or whatever, build or line things to the stars. I forget what the ancients would have thought of the stuff that the American Indian never really said he invented it himself. He always said, that it came from pale-skinned, bearded gods. Of course, one of the most famous, I'm jumping all over the country, but (laughs) one of the the most famous of these is Quetzalcoatl or Kukulkan. This is the white bearded god of Central America who had a red beard who appeared on the midst of the the, waves and arrived to bring uh, the Central Americans, much of their much of their culture, of course, in South America, they have almost the same exact uh, legend. And we came from Viracocha. I think Viracocha means mist of the sea or sea foam. Might mean sea foam. He too was alleged to have given the Inca the ability 
never really stopping, and how how well they've kept a lid on this whole thing. Why uh, who, who are they? Who are they? They are the masters, the gatekeepers, the masters of, of what we are supposed to know and what we're not supposed to know. Now, why would you kind of hide this? I've never really understood that in this particular case. So what? The American Indian didn't get here first. Big deal. When they got here first, and maybe he was genocidal. Well, hold on a second. For everyone's culture and the truth can turn around this white guilt and white pathological altruism, perhaps, that we also talked about. And perhaps uh, those who want to manipulate the most dominant race on the planet, probably, maybe not forever, but right now we still are, I think. Asians are pretty good here with China up and coming and whatever else. The Africans are still in kind of a quagmire. American Indians have been been, uh, kept in check. Quagmire, you're being kind. Yeah, in Czech and North America, South America, you never know. The, uh, the European influx and the South, South American blood has, has rejuvenated some of the nations down there. But, you know, everywhere you look, it's just like you want to kind of keep the myth going. For instance, if, obviously, Dave, if you had uh, one, just one of the tons of evidence, but just one piece of the, the, the magic bullet that didn't prove that the European Holocaust and the Jews hadn't happened, do you honestly believe that that would ever make it into a kid's textbook? Of course not. Not yet. No, not yet. Well, yeah, you know what? It's going to be a long time. A long time. It ain't going to be five or ten years. It's going to be after I pass. And so this is why it's also our duty to to not only, <laughs> not only try to correct the historical record now, make sure we get this stuff up, up there, make sure we fight those efforts to censor us, to censor history, to make sure that these little things that people look at and they say, oh, what's the big deal about the Confederate flags? You know, what's the big deal? Well, it's a a battle. It's a war here. And we begin to give ground consistently before you know it in a short amount of time you've lost. And so our efforts are not nearly as concerted as that of those who want to control history, the politically correct freaks, the, the, um, the, the liberal professors, the, the lobbyists of D.C., the Zionists particularly, who, who always thrive off, and bank bankers that go hand in hand, who also always thrive off the mayhem and pitting of races against each other. So little things like this, and it's kind of different with this particular subject, they certainly don't want you to know that everything that the American Indian, certainly in Central and South America, had created, because I do believe that they were responsible for some of their own creations. Um, but, you know, looking at some of those things like those Olmec heads and those uh, citadels in South America, specifically Puma Punko, by the way, I'm not an ancient alien believer, but uh, these things are so sophisticated that only people doing it at the time were certainly not from that region. And so it kind of would, it would also take away, not only take away the pride of American Indians' pride, but, you know, I mean, not many people care about that in the modern world today. But there are people, and they were noble people. But to let white people know that there may be a side of history to teach them that history isn't necessarily what you read in the history books, and to begin to question academics 
in the textbooks. Now, each of modern-day revolution, thought revolution, on such topics as a true nature of Adolf Hitler, true nature of National Socialism, perhaps in Italy and other countries, Francisco Franco, that whole National Socialist movement, the truth about Holocaust, the truth about who the good guys were in World War II and World War One, threads uh, of secret societies and uh, that they kind of go through history, whether or not um, compound interest is a good thing. <laughs> okay. You don't really want to let the sleeping you, you, you don't want to wake up a sleeping dog. And right now uh, they've got a pretty good grasp on our minds in general, not ours, but our, our country and our people. It's kind of what you were saying at the beginning of the show about they they got us in a stranglehold. I don't think you can use those words. But that that the America's not what it used to be and all this stuff. I'm telling you, man, it's like I said last week, ignorance is our greatest enemy. If people will just educate themselves and take the time to look at their history and look at the news and just don't suck it down. They just, just look at it and think about it. It just makes sense what we are looking at here. For instance, does it make sense today, modern something, that Vladimir Putin would be agitating, as they allege he agitates, on all of his borders and invades and, and assassinates, maybe, I don't know, assassinating politicians and others who are uh, anti-Putin. I mean, would a guy who is sane do this because positioned on his borders are NATO troops and uh, missiles and huge amounts of threatening armaments. So when you stop and look at it, you're like, well, why would somebody lie to me about it? It's almost the first question you should ask is why would somebody lie to me about this particular subject? Who benefits? I think that is the, the ultimate question that everyone must ask at the end of anything that they study. And it returns, so who benefits, Dave? Who benefits from hiding the truth about North America and the people of North America? Who benefits? Who benefits? Well, I'm not sure exactly because big deal. American Indians get to hold on to their myths that they got here first. I mean, has that changed the well, world? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what I think. If the, if the powers that be, let's call them, they, whatever you want to say, if they allow this well-established, conventionally well-established item to be tampered with, what's next? That's my, and, and I think you, you hit it right there. And what does that really mean? You're giving people the truth. The truth is a very dangerous thing because the truth can open minds. And the truth can make people stand up and begin to question more and more. Now, I had another interesting piece here somewhere. I'm going to see if I can find it. Um, it was about these people in Florida that they found his ties in. Another day, we'll go back to that book I gave you. It was more modern. These were the people of Windover Bog in Florida. It was kind of a shocking discovery. I'm going to look it up because if I, if I have it, I will wrap up the show by doing a reading. I haven't 
had a chance to do a little reading recently on now uh, searching for the window of Bob people. Here we go. And so these people were in Florida, and um, they found these skeletons. Evidently, they were Native Americans. They, they believed at first. And they began to look at the sophisticated stuff they were associated with. And I'm not talking guns and stuff. I'm talking like the woven fishing nets and tools that were pretty cool and, and uh, what they looked like and how old they were. I mean, again, they're finding skeletons of 5,000 years ago. Um, and uh, it was called the window of a bog. And as you know, um, bogs are great places for preserving human remains. Those bogs in uh, in Europe, of course, uh, have preserved peat bogs specifically that fall down in there. Man, even our like skin is in shape. It's crazy, man. Um, and so it, it preserved wooden tools and everything else uh, pretty amazingly. So these people were digging. It was 8,000 years ago. That they that these people were allegedly there. So about six thousand BC. But the DNA was the, the big was the big uh, shocker because uh, it was found to be Europeans. Well, now we're talking six thousand five thousand BC. You're saying that the Europeans are here. This is kind of in between the time of the Clovis people before the time of these great copper miners and the Melons, the Egyptians, and, well, obviously the Vikings obviously got here. But let me go ahead and read this. I don't think it's that long. We'll wrap up the show with this. I'll make a few comments after. This is from the Orange Review issue of November, December 2010. I think it's, if it's still available, you ought to call 1-877-773-9111. And get a copy of the November, December 2010 issue. So, at Titusville, Florida, is the Windover Archaeology Site, where more ancient Europeoid remains were discovered than the total of all other archaic human remains found previously in the New World. The cemetery has yielded one of the most complete insights into an American ancient culture. Even DNA was preserved in this bog, dating from 6,000 to 5,000 B.C. But here's the shocker. Paul, uh, do you want to uh, take the call after you read this? Who's the call from? I think it's Harold. Okay. Tell you what. Let me, let's go ahead and take that call right now. Uh, Harold, is that you, my friend? That is me, my friend. How are you doing, guys? Well, doing well, Harold. How are you? Good, very well, actually. I've been listening to your show. I've been trying to use the ta- the, the type feature, and for some reason or other, it's not working real good, so I thought, well, I'll just give you a call. You know, what you're saying is really interesting about, about history and about the different forms of history, who promotes history and whatever. I remember what a broadcaster once told me, and it's, it's absolutely fascinating. He says, well, he says, you read your history book, and I'll read mine. Well, you know, that's a very interesting point. It is let, 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 let me make one comment. I'm sorry to interrupt. Let me make one comment. I've always said, as a nationalist, for instance, let's talk about the black community. And uh, I, I think as nationalists, we want other races to succeed, and we want them to reach their acne. 
And to do this, you have to have some pride in your culture. So I've always had this approach. And people have, have, have laughed at me. I've said, if the blacks want to believe they built the pyramids, let them, if that's what it takes to, get, to give them enough pride in their people, to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and move forward. As pride in your race, that is, then go ahead and let people have false narratives. We like to correct the, the record here. Uh, would you agree that that with that, or do you think we should shoot down other people who hold false beliefs, even though it may be an underpinning of their own cultural pride? Anyway, well, you know, there's no point. In, there's no point in having false pride. If, if a person has false pride, boy, he's going to be uh, setting himself up for a big fall. Possibly, but at this point in time, I would say, you know, listen. Let's take, for instance, the, the, black, the blacks claim they built the pyramids now. Um, you know, I, it, it's, let, let's take let's take, take another take another subject. Find something. Uh, see, so excuse me. You see, you do not agree that um, that that people should be allowed to um, uh, participate in a false narrative of history. That the truth is what we should give them all. Even though, for instance, for the American Indian, it might be who knows what it might do. To a culture at this point in time, I doubt it would do anything. But you know what happens, like when when uh, people people find that their gods aren't real. For instance, those people in uh, the New Guineans, right, and during World War II, who started worshiping the cargo cults. You know, this was like this was like uh, uh, it just destroyed their cultures when they found out that those weren't gods dropping those things from the sky; that they were just human beings with planes. Who are so much more sophisticated, and they were to make them feel like little ants. Shouldn't we have just let them go along and and have their own cosmology and their own their own belief in that? Sometimes I just wonder, you know, isn't it better off to do so? But we can have a, we can discuss amongst ourselves. Um, the, well, the I, truth. I think you're basically right. Uh, this brings up a really interesting story. Um, yeah, I heard years ago when I was a little guy. Maybe you remember when Mount Everest was conquered by Sir Edmund Hillary? Oh, yeah. Okay, he had a, he had a, yeah, you remember that. So, okay, he had a Sherpa guide with him whose name was Tenzing Norgay. And he belonged to a group of people. I don't remember exactly what it was, but they taught the, the falsehood, of course, that uh, the gods lived on top of Mount Everest. So the priest asked uh, Tenzing to give his best regards to the gods when he got to the top. And after he returned to the bottom, the priest asked him, well, he said, did you talk to the to the gods? And he says, no, I didn't. I didn't see anybody. And the priest looked at him and said, well, uh, I guess you didn't make it to the top then, did you? <laughs> oh, boy. Well, it's not that. <laughs> uh, and the Sherpa was the one who got there first, right? I mean, he beat Hillary by a couple steps, or Hillary, what was the story there, I forget, but I think that we always, uh, as whites, we always remember Sir Edmund and Hillary, you know, getting up there first, but I could have sworn I read something recently that was the Sherpa, that they weren't even supposed to be the pair that went up there, it was supposed to be another pair that went up there, so it was interesting, but as whites, we like to think of Sir Edmund and Hillary getting up to the top there first, and, and then the Sherpas, that they certainly went, got there first, while they look at our history book and say, hey, wait a second, slow down. You guys are manipulating ministry. You have anything else to comment on today, Harold? Yeah, I think that'll that'll do it. I just thought I'd add a couple little funsies uh, for the fun of it, and I thank you guys very much. Really enjoy your show. You have a good day. Thank you. Um, I I think you're you should call all the time. You ought to have your own radio program, Harold. 
uh, you're really off you, but I know that you're, it mentioned that you had quite an interesting history and you came here and you've seen America and what it, what it was and what it changed into. So feel free to call anytime you like. I hope you're always a welcome guest here. Well, thank you so uh, much. I appreciate that. No problem at all, Harold. Um, so, so we'll pick up here. This is by the Barnes Review. Yeah, before you finish that, though, I want to say, you know, I want to give my opinion about uh, let the, what was it, the blacks, let them believe that they created what, the universe or something like that? Yeah. They might even ask for your opinion. Well, sorry, you're going to get it. All right. If Harold could give his opinion, I, and I'll tell you, that's like, that's like the proverbial story about the wife asking her husband if she looks fat, right? I mean, what's going to happen? The wife is up to 350 pounds. The husband says, no, honey, you don't look fat, right? I mean, what good is it to let people believe what they want to believe. Honestly, what's the, it's the duty of historians to tell it like it is, isn't it? I mean, if you do let these people believe what they want to believe, who does it help besides them? I mean, it's going to, it's going to complicate things. It's going to cause a lot of problems. I'll be the first one to admit that I could be wrong. But I believe that without a real strong tie to your myths and culture, your myths of culture, that, it's a real pride booster. And here, blacks who were brought here from Africa, they left a lot of their stories, their myths behind. I think that a people need to have a religion. I think that people need to have a pride in themselves from way back. Forget the forget the, um, forget the pyramids. Okay, fine. But I think that they, who do they have? We have, and they, maybe they could study this more. We have Thor. And we have Odin, if we're Western European, what Northern Europeans, and of course the people from Greece, the Greeks and the Italians have this tie to the greats of, of, of Poseidon and Zeus, and, and that's the Greeks, and then the Romans have what Jupiter and um, uh, Neptune, and so you know we have this long history, this greatness, this great richness of our culture, and of course we know now that those gods didn't really exist, I don't think as such. They may have, who knows, just as valid as any other uh, uh, pantheon of, of religion, I imagine. Um, but but in this culture, I think that in the United States, blacks are not learning that. They're not learning. We still learn about the Greek and Roman gods. Well, hey, by the way, that's going to change in school. In school, and we even learn, I've learned about the, well, I think my kids even learned about the Greek and Roman gods. And so, here we are with a portion of the population that needs some connection to its old myth and its old culture. And I do believe that perhaps at least, uh, listen, we know our friend Pete Papaheracles, a great writer and artist over there at American Greek Press. He's so proud of his Greek heritage. And he's also proud of, of maybe he had a lot to be proud of. But here it is in the modern era, era you know, Thinking about the ancient, your ancient culture, your ancient accomplishments, your ancient, um, you know, gods and myths and explorations and everything else, and I just feel like a people who who aren't who've been divested from their from their cultural past or people without uh, without any pride. And so when we look at what happened in Ferguson and Baltimore and we look at these people and we say, you know, the black American, young black Americans, perhaps what they need is a, a, a cultural myth, at least, 
gods, and we all know they're myths, right? I mean, we all know the Greek and Roman gods are myths, yet we still study them and we still uh, we develop, I would say, on pride from them. Maybe we do, maybe we don't. Hercules, certainly, he was a, a Heracles. Hercules the Roman, but Heracles is certainly this great, strong guy, and I'm a Greek, and so I can be like Heracles. Well, in this country, what is a black, young black learning, and who's responsible for him? And would instilling pride in the young black community and a real sense of accomplishment help them? I, I sometimes wonder if maybe they believe that they're worthless, and, and this makes them worthless. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that by, you know, listen, Dave, I mean, I hate to say it, but segregation in some ways really helps, especially at certain levels, because you can really focus on your cultural history. And I don't know, I could be completely wrong here, but I feel like if I had learned about the great accomplishments of white people, even before the real historical record, I would have really been missing out on something. Now listen, I don't know what's going to happen in 20 years or 30 years, when, what this school system is going to be like. I feel the public school system, as I mentioned a week or two ago, is probably one of the most important things for us to keep our eyes on because they're forming children, and you have to supplement this. One of the things I just suggest that every kid learns their own cultural myths. If you're from Scandinavia, learn about it. As the, the elves and the gnomes and the giants and the, and the uh, Sleipnir, the, the, the horse of Odin, and all the richness of this history. And if you're from the Mediterranean, learn about your people. And yes, if you're African or even African-American, you should be able to recall your own creation myths, your own uh, mythological um, uh, accomplishments. Just because the Inca people believe, uh, they ask me, what good does it do anybody? I, I don't know. I, I just think that pride in your own culture is very important. But for, just because the Peruvians, the Incas, were probably not the builders of some of these really ancient uh, structures in their country. I think it might have been the Ayamara. And maybe they were, I don't know. But we don't want to steal that from them. But it turns out that white people really were the great culture bringers of the world. It's, it's not necessary for me to force that on someone else if it's going to cost him his pride. Now, what am I going to teach in school if I'm running the show? I'm just going to make everybody learn about their own, their own people. But when it comes to the truth, we are in a white society still today, believe it or not. I, I guess even people, people always lament. Oh, pretty soon we're going to be the minority. Well, yeah, I guess so. There's nothing we can do about it. I think we got to at least cut off the border here. But with 50,000 white, let's say 50% white, but it's still only you know, 12% black and 20% Latino and 10% Asian, whatever that adds up to. And it's like we're still the largest ethnic group. When one day it becomes 51% Asian or 51% Latino, and it's and the rest of them are wiped out. I don't know what to say. But right now, we're still running the show, and I still think we should have a white-centric school system and textbooks. And so in the days when those change and our own children stop learning about our own rich cultural past, I think that's going to be a very dangerous thing. It's something we need to watch because, you know, once you lose that tie to your people, you become kind of a, a, free, a freelancer, 
you know, you know, really, I think it's a good thing that Dave, you're, Dave, you're, what was your background? You mean, uh, where are my folks from? Yeah. Mom is from Jersey. <laughs> That's New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Her mom from New York. Her background, her mom's background is Lebanese, or was Lebanese, she's passed. Her dad was from Lebanon directly. He came here early part of the last century, and I think he served in World War One in the Navy when he was like 14. Of course, you could do that back then. And my, my dad comes directly from what is now called Iran, Persia. So he was born in Tehran, came here in 1957. So you, 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 are, you are most assuredly an American, but do you, are you interested in your Iranian, your Persian, the greatness of the Persians that you came from? And, and uh, wouldn't, that, doesn't that, wouldn't that fill you with some pride? I, 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 hate to, I hate to admit it, but no. You know, the, the little I know about him, it's, it, it's a bit embarrassing. You know, the history might be interesting, but I mean, the, the current state of that country, the theocracy that it is, uh, no, I'm not, I have no desire to go there. I have no desire to really find out anything more about it as far as my connection to it. I'm an American, you know, I was born here you. and, you know, that's it. That's about as far as it goes. I've been to a bunch of countries around the world. I don't really even have much desire to visit other countries around the world. I'd rather stick to my own country. Well, I'm with you there. I think people should always learn about their own culture, uh, their own country before. There is so much to see here. But I'll tell you, I mean, going over to Portugal, I got to go to Portugal once, and I got to go to Austria once, and that's it. But in Portugal, I saw, you know, <clears throat> just in, in Austria, these things we walk around, and, and in Portugal, there was evidently uh, Lisbon. There was like this massive earthquake. I think it was 15 away. I don't really know. But everywhere you'd see that. That city was just raised to the ground. But the point being that here, the earliest things you're going to see, especially here in Virginia, of course, we're a little bit older as far as that goes, is, uh, that are just prominently you know, publicized in the 1600s, right? Like Jamestown, 1608, I think it was. And, and so it's over there, you get 1300. Maybe there are earthquakes in 1313 or 1200, 1100. Thousand nine hundred. It's like so old and and so much happening that if I was Persian, I couldn't go through life with the modern Persia, having my the blood that's in me, the blood that's running through me, defined by that. I mean, look, the Persians have changed races and ethnicities and everything else over the years. But I mean, at one point in time, the Persians were absolutely amazing. They built Persepolis. They were the great Arch enemy of the Greeks, who are considered one of the great cultures of all time. They had beautiful military uniforms and weapons and tools and and, and, and solutions for problems of irrigation and cities and all this stuff. And this is the blood that runs through you, man. Yeah, and look at where they are now. <laughs> you're not that. I don't think we can say. I don't know where you're getting your information here because if I've got any Iranian listeners, I think that I look there and they look quite Western. And they have cell phones, and they're dressed in business suits, and and I, I, and maybe they have a theocracy, but things come and things go, man. Come on, you know. Now the Iranians won't be like that forever. And you know what? What's wrong with that anyway? Maybe that's what the, maybe that's what's happened to the, the United States is we've lost this 
uh, dedication to religion that that sometimes people say we don't need it, and other people times people say we do. But it almost seems like a more religious people is a is a is a better nation. I mean, a moral nation is better. I mean, are we going to keep on like this with our abandonment of religion in this country? It's one of the things I would have thought that has kept our crime rate so low, is at least the, looking at these uh, religious codification of natural uh, relationships between groups of people. Don't steal, don't murder, you know. <laughs> I don't really want to see turn around and have to say the Ten Commandments, which is supposed to have a URI. Yeah, there's there's some... There, of course, there's positive aspects to it, like the crime. Hey, let's look at Harold again on the phone here. Oh, okay. Harold, you're on, my friend. Yeah, thank you. I just wanted to... It's really important for people to learn their own culture. Can you imagine the cultural genocide that's been done against blacks in this country by denying them the wonderful tales of Uncle Remus? You were cutting out a little bit there, Harold. Can you repeat that? I, I, I think I got you, Carol. Yes, the, the, the blacks have been denied the wonderful tales of Uncle Remus. A, a, exactly. a recent, what, what, what's that? Exactly. Was that is, that yes, is, okay. Were the tales of Uncle Remus, that's a good point, were the tales of Uncle Remus ancient African tales? Yes. Yes. Well, listen. Yeah, you know, my, my uh, take on it is simply this, that they're just as important and just as nice in their own way as, as the Brothers Grimm and Hans Christian Andersen and, and as far as uh, Japanese tales are concerned. So far. Sure. That's a very good point, of course, if anybody didn't hear them. Harold uh, is making the point that the tales of Uncle Remus the Slave, right, and Song of the South, uh, are probably not being, are not being told because of political correctness and the uh, displaying of Uncle Remus as a as a, a slave, probably telling it to little white children who may have been his future masters. Uh, that's a good point. That's, that's interesting. Um, you know, listen, we've all been enslaved at some point in time, as we've discussed in the show so many times, but uh, my people, uh, I, ain't, I ain't going to go out and sue the Romans, right, for, for feeding the Christians the lion. That was so many years ago that this memory of slavery is still obviously fresh and constantly agitated in the mind of black Americans. You know, for a lot of people, remembering when they were slaves isn't such an embarrassment, Okay. You know, my people were enslaved, and we overcame, and we were, well, we uh, were the, when the Romans enslaved us, the Persians enslaved us, whatever, we fought back, and we overthrew the oppressor. And I think one of the things that, that we're, we're, blacks shouldn't be embarrassed by having been slaves. They were outnumbered, I guess, and, and they were confronted by a culture with greater weaponry and uh, sailing technology and iron shackles and everything else. But they didn't overturn it themselves. And I, I think that this is why they have this, this love of, as he comes up all the time, right? Nat Turner, they have this love of Nat Turner, of a violent overthrow. It's as if this is the only way you can gain pride in your people getting out of slavery. It's okay. Don't worry about it. That, that it took 350,000 dead Union soldiers to free the slaves. Uh, the hundreds of thousands of Maine whites who risked their lives to free the slaves. It's okay. Don't worry about it. We did it for you. A little present we gave to you, okay? Now, what you can do for us now is to go ahead and become productive members of society. And I want to say, 
indicates you believe in the pyramids to do so, then that's fine with me. It may not be fine with Dave. It may not be fine with Harold, but it's fine with me. But I think to be embarrassed of Uncle Remus is silly. I mean, look at him. Well, it's kind of silly. Yeah, yeah, it's totally silly because the thing is, if you just read the folk tales for what they are, they're beautiful tales. Some of them are enough to make you want to laugh to split your sides. Yes, yes. And so so the point is, no matter what your culture is, you have something to be proud of. Uh, the uh, the Western, for, for any blacks who would listen to the show, and they'd probably turned me off about five, five episodes ago, but the, 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 the beautiful sculpture, so the culture of Ife and Benin, in West Africa, who used what I think was the lost wax process. But if I were to go out today and ask any kid under, I would hope, man, I'm over 30, let's say no way, a black over 30 would even know who Ife, the culture of Ife and Benin are, or to know that the mixed Saharan Muslim, Sub-Saharan Muslim, uh, black and Arab culture of Timbuktu too, existed and were great traders they were. And whether or not it was built by them or not, the, the walls of Greater Zimbabwe that we talked about briefly in one show. If you don't know about this, if you don't know about, listen, I know they might know the great Zulu uprising <coughs> in which they fought the British. Um, well, I think you're know, absolutely right. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. One of the other things we tend to forget are all the Persian tales. For example, uh, Aladdin and the Wonderful Lamp or the Thousand and One Nights and all that. It's a really good point, Harold, that political correctness has probably denied our own children of other cultures, because yeah. the Persians are, in, in effect, Aryans. But you're right. What, what, are they still teaching um, the, the tales of Aladdin in school? I don't know. They would imagine, I can imagine that they wouldn't because of political Well, I can imagine they wouldn't, too. I know when I homeschooled, we made sure that both the tales of Uncle Remus and, and the Persian tales were told, along with uh, Brothers Grimm and uh, and. Uh, and all the others, and not to mention the Nordic tales, or for that matter, even the ones out of the, out of Asia, because they're all beautiful tales. Yes, that's exactly right. Well, listen, thanks for thanks for throwing that in there about Uncle Remus. And I will talk to you some oh. other time. You guys have a good day. Okay. Here's a hearty zippity doo rock for you. <laughs> Are you familiar with the tales of Uncle Remus, Dave? Sadly, no. Uh, you know, uh, oh. maybe I'm wrong. Oh, you know, Gray Rabbit, right? Gray Rabbit? Yeah, Gray Rabbit is one of them. And then I uh, remember the song Zippity Doodah. You don't get to hear that Zippity Doodah. Well, you don't get to hear that. Um, hey, yeah, that's right. Well, listen, uh, one of the songs, one of the, the, the books that I grew up with, and it just it never really made me think as a little kid about blacks. It made me fun to think about kids, because that's how kids think. They don't really think racially. But it was the old tale of Little Black Sambo. And Little Black Sambo. Yeah, there's another one. Yeah, and so when I look at that now, I look at the, the characterization of the extremely large lips, and I can see where blacks might be um, embarrassed of that or, or upset by that. But the tale went like this, right? Harold, you probably remember. Yep. A very clever fellow, Little Black Sambo, right? He wasn't a dummy. Yep. The tiger he was, was out to get him. Yeah, the tiger was out to get him. And he ran around. He ran that tiger around that tree so many times that tiger turned into butter, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I found and I had a book and I looked through one of the yeah, ones he that became, kept, he basically became the hero of the village. That's right. He was the hero of the village, but I guess maybe it was the picture of it, or maybe just 
maybe 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 racists, I don't know, started calling black people little black sambos, whatever. It just it went out. But if they could just rename that character, give him his original I'm sure it's an ancient African tale. You know. But anyway, listen, if we get on this, I'm not gonna be able to finish this with eleven thirty. Let me just read a few paragraphs out of this and I'll encourage you once Well, let me let me get out of it, guys. You have a good one, we'll talk to you another time. All right, very good. Thanks, Harold. Harold. Here, Harold's a smart guy. Uh, he's had a lot of experience with kids and everything else, which is great. And that home school and he mentioned, so he really has got a yeah. He's a good American. Real hand on hand. Great American. I wish he'd tell me whether he was flying that flag or not. But anyway, once again, Titusville, Florida is the Wendover archaeology site where more ancient European Europoid remains were discovered than the total of all other archaic human remains found previously in the New World. The cemetery has yielded one of the most complete insights into an ancient American culture. Even DNA was preserved in this bog dating from 6,000 to 5,000 BC. But here's the shocker these people were Europeans. In January of 1982, a most interesting chapter in American archaeology was opened by a backhoe operator at Windover, Florida, named Steve Vanderjack. He's a uh, just about to prepare a new road in a swampy area called the Windover Bog near Titusville, not far from the Kennedy Space Center. We noticed the backhoe turned up a human skull mixed into the black peat. Jim Swan, chief developer of the project, realized from the coloring of the bones that he was possibly dealing with ancient remains and decided to call an archaeologist, Glenn H. Doran, a professor and chair of anthropology from Florida State University. As human remains kept appearing from the shallow depths of the bog, Doran noticed the extreme wear on the teeth and a complete lack of ceramic material, indicating an ancient gravesite older than 3,000 years. As a trained anthropologist with extensive experience, he also must have realized that the skulls he was dealing with were not what we call Native Americans, i.e. Eskimos, Salutes, or quote-unquote Indians. But to his credit, he decided to go ahead with the plan to study the site anyway. When the first carbon dating was returned, the age of the remains was established as older than 7,000 years, allegedly. It was clear from this moment on that Wendover was the richest archaeological site of that time period in America and can still provide an unprecedented opportunity to learn about the ancient population of the area. Because the whole site was underwater, a large area of the bog had to be drained in order to properly recover and preserve everything of value from the site. In 1984, 130 wells were sunk into the swampy peak, pumping out thousands upon thousands of gallons of water. As the water was drained, an ancient cemetery became visible, an extraordinary archaeological find. Well-preserved skeletons of men, women, and children, 168 in all, were recovered providing a rich window into the lives of a people. Scholars barely knew existed. Pools made of bone and even wooden objects and fabric survived in excellent condition because of the unique chemical balance of the water that preserved them so well. Interestingly, all the bogs and ponds close by tested highly acidic in comparison. Fungus and bacteria growth was simply locked out by the peat, covering the bodies and the usual process of decay was brought to a standstill. Ninety-one of the skulls, even the soft tissue of the brain, was present. 
offering a rare opportunity for analysis and easy DNA testing. The bog preserved bodies and artifacts extremely well, and people may have used it as a burial site for over 1,000 years for that very reason. They wouldn't figure that out for a couple hundred years, but at any rate. What has been learned? Of 168 individuals recovered by the researchers, 67 were younger than 17 years of age. They were placed into the shallow graves about 8,000 to 7,000 years before present, allegedly. Many of the bodies were covered with woven, woven fabric, varying from coarse matting to a fine weave. Weaving skills were generally spread out to the whole of the North American continent at the time. There are countless items to show this. The bodies were often held to the shallow bottom with wooden stakes driven through the fabric covering the bodies. Stakes most likely also served as markers. Their tops were visible above the bog at the time of the burial. In other words, these were pretty long stakes, almost spear-like length or longer. Not short stakes, like you hold down a tent. There was an orderly placement of the bodies. Prior burials were not disturbed by the newly deposited bodies. Floral seeds, sometimes intermixed with finely ground fish bones, were often found next to the bodies. These people were buried with flowers and often with their favorite tools or toys. The artifacts recovered from the graves were made of bone, antler, animal teeth, stone, and shell. The parts of an atlatl, or a spear throw, were fastened with glue into position. Feminine items were associated with female burials. This includes incised bird bones, polished bone pins, and beads made of thrilled fish vertebrae. Males were buried with awls made from the leg bones of carnivores, antler, atlatl spurs, and hooks. Canine and shark teeth were used to make engraving and cutting tools. A high mortality rate for children is normal for a prehistoric society. A two-year-old girl was buried with a set of thrilled shell toys. A four-year-old was buried with deer bone and palm seed beads. A newborn child was buried together with an 11-year-old. These children had one of the highest numbers of artifacts buried with them. Obviously proving, they, by the way, that human beings have a very consistent um, uh, behavioral pattern in that uh, even as far back as, you know, Neanderthal man, different from us, but Cro-Magnon man, they love their family members. They're very tied to them. This is something that hasn't changed. These cavemen of old were not unsophisticated people. They're very, very, very much just like us. At any rate, back to the story. I agree with that. People don't change. (laughs) Very few stone tools located. Why do I always think I know you mean something more when you make that simple comment? But anyway, <laughs> the stone with which these few were made was brought from the mountain 80 miles away. <clears throat> An antler tool showed threading, apparently to ensure a tight fit to its handle. Barbed projectile points were often found with adhesives still discernible. Projectile points were also made of antler. It looked like they were making some of these sophisticated Clovis-style uh, projectile points here. A lot of it looks like they've moved to bone and and other and, and other part uh, of whatever uh, things. Uh, so that's interesting. Uh, it could be that the uh, stone projectile point technology was best for the 
hunting large game and the American Indians slowly but surely on the west at least in the center of the country outside of this white area uh, made smaller and smaller arrowheads and, and projectile point technology because the game became smaller and smaller and smaller. At any rate, a wide variety of hand-woven fabrics demonstrated sophisticated weaving techniques. This activity is consistent in America and all over the world, and it connects together advanced ancient blood cultures. Special technology had to be developed for preserving the fabric samples as they rapidly decomposed after drying. By the way, similar fabrics were also found in the Black Desert area in western Nevada, uh, leading some to believe there was another pocket of white activity out there. Um, you can follow in, in the article. It says we can follow this trail in the archaic period, just like we can follow the spread of Salutrian tools into America in the Clovis period. Um, now it's going to talk a little bit about the Salutrians. The Salutrian culture, originating from the south of France, closely ties into with the later American Clovis culture. Sophisticated, thin, bifacial, razor-sharp spear points made by these two cultures made it possible for these Stone Age men to face off the largest and fiercest beasts of their time. Willy mammoths, mastodons, giant bison, lions, and short-faced bears. The spear points they crafted with great expertise compared to the stone tools of Neanderthal man, almost like a 44 Magnum for pea shooter. They elevated these late Stone Age tribes to the top of the food chain and ensured their expansion and survival. But back to the Windover society. The Windover population is the earliest large enough population group known where statistical conclusions can be drawn concerning life expectancy. We have plenty of indications that these people have ample food resources at hand. They live by hunting, fishing, and the gathering of plants and seeds. Thus, they were not forced to adopt a nomadic lifestyle. The area at the time was a wooded marshland. The people of Windover had teeth that were worn heavily, but had very few cavities. The total group of 168 individuals included 40 adult males and 43 adult females. A window of a child at birth would expect to live around 27 to 30 years of average. But if one made it to 25, could then expect to live a little bit older, make it up to 60 years old. Two out of the 168 people in this 7,000-year-old place made it to 75 years of age. Women in their early childbearing years were at greater risk of dying simply because of the associated risks of child delivery. But after the age of 25, their life expectancy was about the same as a window of a man. Windover people certainly had a humane society. A child who died at age 15 had spina bifida. Most likely, he was paralyzed from the waist down. Yet he had survived long after losing one of his feet. Stump healed. It must have required extra effort to sustain him. Children were buried with more tools and toys than adults, indicating their high social value in the group. Life was rough for the Windover people, as it usually was in primitive societies. Interestingly, females suffered broken limbs and hands far more than males. On the other hand, males had 16 cases of broken skulls and facial bones, while females had none. Some things never changed. One man had a deeply embedded antler projectile point in his hip bone. After recovering over 10,000 bones and hundreds of tools, in 1987, the site was returned to its original condition, to the credit of the team working there, half of the site was left undisturbed for future excavation. Now, this was back in 87. Okay, this might have been before, like, the real political correct uh, impetus came along. Now, who were these people? That's what I want to know. Well, here's what he says. 
Through the three years of excavation, the team managed to keep the issue of race out of all communications with great discipline. Had they committed only a single mistake of political incorrectness, the expensive project would have run into a concrete wall and the flow of funds would most likely have been stopped. A parallel case with the discovery of the Kennedy skeleton in 1996. Dr. James C. Chatters, a local anthropologist in Kennewick, Washington, wrote down his first visual observations about Kennewick Man. The skull was immediately European-like, long, narrow, very constricted behind the eyes with a very prominent nose. I immediately got the impression I was dealing with a European, probably an early Kennewick pioneer. I had no idea where the story was going at that point. The bridge of the nose is very prominent, skull very narrow, recedes to the back. Excuse me, hold on one second. I'm slipping the page. It was the kind I'd only seen among the people of Western Eurasia. Very long limbs, lower limb segments quite long compared to the upper, and American Indians tend to be quite the opposite. They're short-limbed. We've got a paradox here. Here's a Stone Age object from the European man after the carbon dating reports are in. Dr. Chatters was making his observation without benefit of DNA tests, just like all anthropologists did for hundreds of years before. The feds immediately came down on Dr. Chatters. did confiscate the priceless bones and slavishly hand them over to local Indian tribes for disposal. The event was followed with excuse me, to an everlasting court battle that is still not closed. Um, PBR's had multiple articles on Kennewick Man. I suggest you go on the website and look them up. But anyway, Professor, Professor Doran, our, back to our archaeologist at Windover, his team had the advantage of operating in the pre-NAGPRA environment. The Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act that became a law in 1990. So, yes, it was 1990 when the NAGPRA, American Indian Act, took over, and all of a sudden, all bones found, no matter what obviously obvious culture they're from, had to be turned over to American Indians. As Dr. Doran or whoever it was had pointed out earlier, Europeans are long, skinny headed, and Mongoloids, American, and Eskimos are kind of round headed and short headed. We call that. Uh, long-headed people are Philip Joseph Fallock, and the round-headed people are called Brachus Fallock. <laughs> and anyway, extreme care was taken by the team to avoid the introduction of race into the excavations, as we mentioned earlier. Windover must be the politically correct archaeological, the most politically correct archaeological event in American history. Doran wouldn't even publish a single skull image for fear that they were going to come down on him once they saw that these were not the classic. Mongoloid American Indian. However, in 2002, five years after finishing the excavations, Doran did publish his book, Rindover, Multidisciplinary Investigation of an Early Archaic Florida Cemetery. The book's an extremely valuable, detailed collection of the information recovered, printed in 393 large format pages. However, all the images are extremely poor quality, by the way, and not a single image was printed of a human skull. Uh, the Brevard Museum of History and National Science, Florida, with a section dedicated to Windover, is not a single image of a fully visible human skull displayed on their website or in their exhibition. The hundreds of scientific publications contained incredible details on the cavities and conditions of every tooth, 
of the 168 individuals recovered. Images of every single tool, every fabric piece, but not a single image of a skull. That is important to our author here. Also, the average height of the Wendover population is dramatically taller than the Indian population of the area, but it is difficult to get exact data. A single photograph of a skull probably made right after recovery at the site has been located, but the author wonders here, Professor Dorn forbade the taking of pictures at the site to hide the true identity of the Wendover people. However, the lack of this data Top with the lack of proper connected DNA research is a clear indication of an organized attempt to cover up the racial identity of the Wendover population. Anthropologists traditionally use multivariate analysis to establish racial identity based on skull measurements. Excuse me. Uh, for example, Professor Jose Garcia from Spain used sophisticated instrumentation to take 90 different measurements on each of the 33 skulls he found in Baja, California, sewer of the Paracu people and proved that they were not part of the Amer Indian population, but later survivors of a racially different group. And by the way, the Paracu are very interesting, P-E-R-I-C-U, you look them up. Um, they were not part of the Amer Indian, but later survivors of a racially different group. The last member of this group died in the early 20th century. Professor Doran was asked by investigators for images of skulls and related statistical data for Wendover back in 2006, and he replied to the long list of studies. There was one single item there that was dedicated to the issue and has never been published. Similar request to Doran and the Brevard Museum made again in 2010. This time, no, one, no reply was received. Even before these sophisticated analytical methods were developed, an experienced anthropologist could easily determine the race of a person simply and quickly by visual examination. Racial differences are quite obvious. For example, Bull Woman, B-U-H-R Woman, who was found in a rock quarry in Bull, Idaho in 1989, died in her teenage years, about 11,000 years ago. No study was done before she was reburied by the Shoshone Bannock tribe in 1991 based on the NAGPRA rules. Yet, based on photographic evidence, Dr. Doug Owsley, who we mentioned earlier, calculated the skull's dimensions and concluded she was not an American Indian at all. Dr. Owsley is a top U.S. specialist, division head of physical anthropology, where he was, I don't know if he still is or not, at the National Museum of Natural History at Smithsonian Institution. Dr. Owsley was the one who initiated the suit to protect Kennewick Man's skeleton from repatriation with a group of other scientists risking his own position in the process and was successful with the suit. Dr. Owlsden also established, after simple visual examination of the skulls, that five skeletons recovered from the Jamestown colony were not Native Americans, as originally thought, but African, Negroid origin. Nothing shocking there. There were a few slaves there. Just You could look right off the bat. If you knew what you were looking at, you could say a white man, Asian man, black man, just by looking at the skulls. Professor Doran back to the DNA evidence, dedicated 14 pages and numerous pictures and tables in this book to the methods and studies of the DNA of the Wendover people. His final conclusion was thus. Since the haplogroup frequency distribution of the prehistoric Wendover population is unlike that of any known surviving or prehistoric group, they may represent the only demonstrated instance of the recent extinction of a group of Native Americans with no close surviving relatives. <coughs> That's a very tricky, tricky sentence. However, he is calling bog people here Native Americans. They say they have no close relatives surviving today in America. 
Uh, well, he's wrong about that. We are <laughs> a population that resembles these Wendover people. But anyway, he is trying to state that members of a different race were living at Wendover and apparently refuses to use the word whites. Dr. Joseph Lorenz from the Coriel Institute of Medical Research was also charged with uh, checking out the DNA markers and looking for those ones that are American Indian in the DNA samples taken from the bones of five individuals from Wendover. He did not find what he was looking for, but he didn't stop there. After comparing the Wendover DNA to present European people, he said, I went back to the screen and I looked at the sequences again. The first person's DNA it looked European. When I looked at the second one, it looked European. When I looked at the third, fourth, and fifth, it was slightly different from the first two but still European. The Learning Channel had a program entitled Secrets of the Bog People, Wendover, wherein Dr. Gregory from Cornell also stated that DNA samples taken from the brains of the Bog people proved European origin. In reality, DNA found at Wendover is probably sufficient in quality to allow the cloning of a human, if that were possible, to almost exactly duplicate a member of that tribe and bring him to life. We believe he could seamlessly fit into any large European city where it had all the mental and physical faculties of an average white person of our times. Well, uh, the article does go on. I don't want to read it all and give away the entire article. That was the November-December 2010 issue of the Barnes Review, available at P.O. Box 15877, Washington, D.C., 2003, for $10. And it's got a lot of other stuff in that issue. They had an American Holocaust, White Slaughter, and Sacred Ridge, all at uh, Colorado, and ancient, kind of a, uh, imagined and uh, what the evidence might suggest happened to an ancient white culture there. It discusses other ancient white bones besides the Kennewick Man. It talks about the, has a great little sidebar on this uh, topic we were discussing earlier about the difference between bogus points and lutrium points. It talks about uh, the many unsolved mysteries of America's ancient past. I'm trying to see. Our, and our first story was about the amazing lost history of America's West Coast and, and, and King, quote unquote, King Francis Drake, who looked like he may have left some archaeological finds all the way out in what's now Northern California now. And uh, it's just, it was shocking. Uh, Drake, in his map, nearly mapped the California and Baja coastline in Northern. Mexico in there by the Baja Peninsula and that little Gulf of Baja nearly perfectly and proving that he had gotten here himself earlier than they had said, but him in this case certainly after Columbus. Anyway, the Barnes Review is just an absolute wealth of information uh, and on all kinds of subjects. You gotta you gotta get a subscription to that magazine if you don't right now. But for, for us, basically, to kind of make a couple comments and wrap up our discussion today, Dave, I would say what I love to find out, read about ancient people getting to the Americas. We didn't even get into the, the post-3000 B.C. or Yeah, post or pre, I don't know what it is, but anyway, from, from 3,000 years ago to today, but the number of the amount of evidence of people that were here so far before Columbus. And, uh, and it's Harold's fault. Well, that's no problem. We we have to have a five-hour show. 
But even though I am white, and I love to hear about white culture, we've got to also admit that sometimes we're twisting things a bit ourselves. And so, I mean, I don't know for what reason, if it's not done for the benefit of white people and somebody else, but the idea of the Columbus guy here first, I mean, come on, get over it already. We know the Vikings were here. And there's always a, a rumble in the jungle, shall we say, <laughs> when the Italians and the Norse get together. I remember one year during a... Uh, 1492 uh, Columbus Day uh, celebration up in the Northeast. I think some guy, they had the tall ships coming in, right? Remember? And uh, it was a big, uh, yeah, that, that may have been the 1776 celebration, but this was about, about the Columbus Day celebration. Some guy started coming in uh, like a, a Viking boat that was uh, about the uh, you know, exact reproduction of the size. And oh my gosh, there was fights in the crowds between the Italians and the Norwegians. And, and the Scandinavians, oh, because those Scandinavians still know great, great pride in their great, great pride in their past that the Vikings were here first. But anyway, we didn't get involved in that. That'll have to be some other show. And I'd like to have with this guy Rhett from uh, from uh, one of our subscribers who has a degree in archaeology and, and anthropology to get on and tell me a little bit more about early man. He's, he went to Poverty Point. He has uh, talked to scientists who who have dated some of these. These skulls, these mana skulls, just shows that in the end, I was saying, what do I like to know about this and what proves We don't know squat about squat. Okay, we got to keep on digging. we got to keep on ignoring what they're telling us sometimes. We have to verify things for ourselves. And we've got to look for alternative news and history sources. I say it all the time. I suggest the Barnes Review at barnesreview.org or .com, B-A-R-N-E-S, Review, and American Free Press, or whom you are being web editor and do a heck of a job collecting all kinds of news items. Each one, I think, teaches us something about the forces that are manipulating history in our own lives from behind the scenes. But for right now, I'm just going to say that this wraps up this edition of History Today, and I'm going to invite you to tune in next week at this time. And for now, Dave, have a great day. All listeners, I will see you next time. Take care.